that God hears us. How awful would it be to pray to a God that can't hear you? And yet that's what untold millions of people around the world do every day. We were in Trinidad a few years ago. I'm going to take a drink of this water. (coughs) I'll turn around this way so you're not jealous. And uh, we went and visited a Hindu temple. And that was an interesting thing. It really was. We went in there and there were all of these idols and it was a temple to the monkey god. And so there was this massive monkey idol and, and there were rules posted out there. Don't, don't joke, don't laugh, don't say anything. It's disrespectful to the monkey god. Well, how do you not make jokes about the monkey god? I mean, come on. <laughs> That's a little unreasonable, you know, but we were very careful. And we went in, and, and they had all these other idols, you know, the one with an elephant head and one with snakes coming off the head and, and just horrendous, awful, ugly things. And people were laying money down in front of these things, and they were lighting candles in front of them, and they were bringing food. There were bowls of rice and different things sitting in front of those, and they're trying to make contact with their gods that can't hear them and don't see them. And we have a God who hears and sees everything, amen? Who knows us so well that he knows what we have need of before we even ask, and yet he still wants us to ask and talk to him. What a wonderful God. Not just some dead statue somewhere, not some fake God, not some phony imposter, but the God of heaven. And the most amazing thing is that not only does he hear us and pay attention to us, that he loves us. What an amazing thought that he would love us, that he wouldn't just wipe us out. I mean, just come on, let's be honest. What we deserve is to be wiped out. And yet he loves us and he listens to us and he answers. What a great God. Listen, don't ever take that for granted. Amen. Don't ever take that for granted. Take your Bible tonight and turn to the book of Philippians chapter four. We were there earlier uh, this week. And I want to go back to that chapter tonight, Philippians chapter number four. When you've found that, if you can stand easily, would you stand with me as we read the word of God? Philippians chapter four. I don't know about you, but it seems like Wednesday night got here awfully quickly. And uh, it's just gone by so fast. And we've already put a meeting on the calendar down the road. So we will be back and we will do it again. Amen. Amen. And uh, you just, uh, it'll be here before you know it. It really will. And we'll be looking forward to that for the next uh, couple of years. And, and we'll be excited about coming back. Quite honestly, I don't want to come back. <laughs> just be honest with you. I'm saying that. We'll look forward to it. No, I don't want to come back. Uh, I would prefer that the rapture happen. That'd be my preference. And, and we would have a much better meeting in heaven. I mean, that's the place to have a meeting there, up around the throne of God. And we'll, listen, you'll sing like you've never sung. You'll never cough in the middle of a song. It just won't happen. And we'll just rejoice around the throne of God and we will praise the, the God who loved us and gave his son to die for us. And I hope that happens before two years down the road. I really, I really do. I hope it happens before that. But if it doesn't happen before that, we'll see you in two years. Amen. And we'll still look forward to that because that'll be fun. Philippians chapter 4. We stopped the other day in verse number 9. Tonight I want to start reading in verse number 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here tonight in this place. Uh, Lord, we have had a, a wonderful time the last several days as we've looked into your word and allowed your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts And God, tonight we ask that again you would speak to our hearts. 
you know what we need more than we know what we need. And God, I pray that we would just be open and available for you to deliver what we need tonight. And God, make us wise enough to respond to it. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here in uh, Philippians chapter 4, we saw in the first several verses the, the pursuit of peace and how to obtain peace that the world desperately wants and they're looking for, but they don't know where to find it. And then you get down here to verse number 10, and he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Now, what's being referred to here is the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome to the church at Philippi, and God is giving him the words to write. He is thanking the church at Philippi for sending him what we would call a care package. He's sitting in, in prison in Rome, and the Roman prison system was not like our prison system. You know, none of us want to get thrown in jail. None of us want to get thrown in prison. But in the United States of America, we feel like you ought to be treated humanely. If you're incarcerated, there are certain, certain rights and things that, that we try to make sure you are guaranteed. You're supposed to get a certain amount of food and a certain amount of rest and a certain amount of exercise and, and medical care and things that you need. And then other enrichment things. You can take educational courses. You can, you can do other things because our purpose is not just to be mean to people that we have locked up. Uh, it's not a bad idea, but it's not our purpose. Amen? That's not what we do. We try to be humane. The Romans didn't care about that. There was no guarantee that you'd be treated a certain way or, or you'd be treated with any kindness or shown any deference at all. As a matter of fact, it, many times a prison would be nothing more than a hole or a pit and you'd be thrown in there like the prophet Jeremiah, up, filth up to his, uh, up to his knees, and, and you'd be there. And if you, if you didn't have food, well, that's a terrible shame. So you, had to, you don't have food. If you get sick, well, you know, maybe you'll die, and that'll save them the trouble of pulling you out and killing you later. Because once you were in there, that's what was going to happen to you anyway. They were going to take you out, and they were going to kill you sooner or later. And so if you died in there, it just saved them a step. Saves, they, they weren't concerned about that. And you might get food and you might not. And you might get care and you might not. And you might freeze to death or they might give you a blanket or a cloak, but, but they might not. And so if you had someone that was incarcerated somewhere and the, the, uh, the assumption is that Paul was not in one of those nasty, deep holes, but he was in more of a, more of a house arrest kind of situation, that may well be the case but he still didn't have all of his needs met. They didn't take care of him. And he was on his own, and if he was going to get the things he needed, someone had to send them to him. If you go back to the colonial period of the United States of America, you'll find out it was that way here. You know, you had somebody that got thrown in, in jail, you had to take food, and you had to take clothing, and you had to take what they needed, because they weren't giving it to them in there. I mean, that just was not... If you were in jail tough. That's the way it was. And so the church at Philippi said, let's send some things to Paul to be a blessing to him in prison. And so they did. And in verse number 10, he's thanking them, saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but lacked opportunity. And then in verse number 11, he says this, not that I speak in respect of want, He's making it very clear now that he is not thanking them for what they've done so that they will do more. He's not in a very subtle and underhanded way begging for more stuff. Have you ever had somebody thank you for something and you got the distinct impression that they're asking to do it again? You know, thank you for, uh, thank you for that $10 you gave me for lunch yesterday. I wonder what I'm going to do for lunch today. What they're really doing is asking for more, you know. And he's saying, now, you need to understand, I'm not doing that. I'm just thanking you for what you've already done. And if you read down to the end of the chapter, you'll see it was pleasing to God, and God is honored with that. And by the way, that's the context in which it says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. 
That, that verse doesn't just show up on its own floating out there in the air. It's in the context of you gave to his needs. Now God is going to take care of your needs. And so this, this is, uh, it's in reference to all of that. And he's thanking them for their care and for their love and for their kindness. And then you see something else. He says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I want to preach to you on this subject. Contentment in difficult times. Contentment in difficult times. I think you'd agree with me that the Apostle Paul is in a difficult period right here. He's not where he wants to be. He's not doing what he wants to do. That's clear if you read the first three chapters of the book. He says, I want to come see you. I want to go preach. I want to go do this and that. But I can't do it. So he's somewhere he doesn't want to be, unable to do the things that he wants to do. Not bad things, good things for God. But he still can't do them. And he says, now thank you for what you've done. I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. So we see there is a possibility of contentment. Notice what he said. I have learned. This wasn't something natural. This wasn't something I automatically knew. Throughout my ministry and my Christian life, God has taught me something. He's taught me that I can be content no matter what the circumstances are. And if the Apostle Paul, sitting in prison, has learned to be content. I submit to you that I can learn to be content. And you can learn to be content. So well, I'm just, that's not my personality and that's not, well, it wasn't his either. That wasn't natural for him. He had to learn that. God had to teach him that. And if God could teach him that, he can teach me that. It is a possibility. Don't just reject the possibility. It's a valid possibility. If you're willing. That's the key, amen? There's a lot of things with God that way that are, that are perfectly possible if you're willing, if you're just willing. So we see the possibility of contentment. And he says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. That means even Ohio. I know, I know. No matter where you go, there's somebody who doesn't want to be there. I mean, you, you might think, you know, let's say uh, uh, you might have in your mind that, oh, I, I don't know, Wyoming is the perfect place for everybody to be. And yet you go to Wyoming and you know, you know what you find? There are people who don't want to be there. And I understand that every time I drive through there, I'm telling you. I don't want to be there either. And there are people who don't want to be in Ohio. There are. And so they gripe and they complain and they moan and they groan. Here I am and I don't want to be here. Listen, God can teach you how to be content even if you're someplace you didn't want to be, you didn't intend to be. Why don't you just assume it's God that allowed you to be here and quit griping to him about it, amen? I'm from Alaska, you know that. Spent most of my life in Alaska. Alaska is one of those places that people either love or hate. There's not much middle ground. People don't say, oh, yeah, I could live in Phoenix, Arizona or Fairbanks, Alaska. No, if you love one, you're going to hate the other. It's, I mean, it's, there's no middle ground. And the winters are long and they're cold and it's isolated. And you can't just get in your car and drive to the next state because the next state's a whole country away. You just can't do that. And it's, it's a whole different life. And you either love it or hate it. And, and right in our town in Fairbanks is an army base. There it is. And they send these guys up and they do it in the middle of the winter. These poor kids who've just gone through training and they're in North Carolina and they're in Georgia and they send them to Fairbanks, Alaska in January and February for Arctic training. It's ridiculous. And they come, and, and it's one way or the other. Either they love it, they immediately fall in love with it, they love the hunting, and they love the outdoor stuff, and they love all that thing, and they want to stay forever, or they hate it, and they can't wait to get out, and they're counting the days, and they can tell you how many days, how many hours, until they're on the plane, and they're gone. 
It's one way or the other. We get people that come, you know, they get transferred up and they're there and they're looking for a church and they come by our church and, and they come in and, and they like the church and they start attending and they're coming Sunday morning and Sunday night, Wednesday night, and they're showing up for extra stuff and, and they're involved. And then we say, you know, have you thought about joining the church? Oh, no, we're only going to be here for four years. Well, four years is a long time. Oh, but we don't intend to stay. Well, who cares what you intend? You're here. Amen. Just assume God put you there and jump in with both feet and do everything you can wherever God has put you. So well, I'm not staying in Ohio all my life, but you're here now. So jump in with both feet and get busy serving God right where you're at because every day you spend wishing you were somebody else, somewhere else, doing something else is a day you have just wasted for God. Stop that. Amen? Wherever God has put you, you just get busy serving and if God wants you somewhere else, he will make it very clear. And he will open doors and close doors. And he will, if he has to, he'll just push you right out of there. Amen? To get you where he wants you to go. You just, you just get busy where you are and serve God. And if he wants you to move on, he'll get you to move on. You need to learn to be content. Now, we have a home in Kentucky now. You know that. And uh, through the whole COVID thing, you know, it was strange. And fortunately, Ohio, you know, your, your governor, for whatever good and bad he was or is, uh, he didn't make a big deal about churches shutting down. He said, if you want to, you can. If you want to have services, you can, which is the right thing to do. Amen. It's the only right thing to do. Our governor in Kentucky. He's a character. He's a character. Yeah. He must have had a rough childhood or something. I think he got beat up a lot when he was a kid, you know, because he's just got this complex. And, and really, all he wanted to do was be like the governor of Michigan. But he'll never be half the man she is. So everything she did, he wanted to do. As soon as, as, soon as the whole thing hit, he made some mandates. He said, all right, you can't leave the state. It's too dangerous. You certainly can't go to Tennessee because they're not locked down as, as hard. So you can't go and you can't leave the state. Well, no governor has the authority to say that. You can't do that. So that got tossed out right away. And then he'd make another man to get tossed out. I mean, everything that he said for, for a year, it just as soon as he'd say it, it would get tossed out. It was the hardest year of his life. I mean, it was traumatic for the poor man. And you look at it and you think, what in the world? What kind of, you know, crazy house are we living in here? And, and people are thinking, oh, well, if we don't get rid of him, I'm going to move out of here. Well, they didn't move out of here. So wherever you're at, God can teach you to be content there. He can. Even if it's someplace that has frustrations and it's annoying and this and that, God can teach you to be content. When the circumstances go just the opposite of the way you always thought they were going to go, God can teach you to be content in the middle of it. Because just like we said about peace and like we said about rejoicing, listen, contentment is not based on the circumstances. Contentment is based on your relationship with God. If your contentment is based on your circumstances, you're going to spend a lot of days in your life discontent. Because rarely do all the circumstances line up just perfectly in anybody's life. And yet here, sitting in prison, he said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 6, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You know what our problem is most of the time? We're looking for great gain. And we're striving for gain. And we want to capture all those things that intrigue us and that we want and, and, we, and we save for and we, and we want to get and we want those things and those positions and that stuff. And we think if we can just get all of that, then we'll be content and then we'll work on our godliness. 
God says, no, that's exactly wrong. You be godly and learn to be content and then gain is a byproduct of that. Gain is something that just happens. But if you go seeking for gain, not only will you never be content, you'll never be godly. It just won't happen. Godliness with contentment is great gain. First Timothy 6, verse number 8, And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 5, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Why can we be content with what we've got in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, because there is nothing better. There's nothing more. You go out looking for something more than what you got when you got Jesus Christ and you will have to look in the wrong places and you will find the wrong things. There's not a, a new and improved version. There's not something better. There's not something more. Uh, listen, if you've got the God of heaven indwelling you and he's going to never leave you and never forsake you, what more could you get? You've got it, amen? You've got all the wonderful things that he promises to his children. And if you go looking for more than what he gave you and what he promised you, you will have to look in the wrong places. That's why when people get all caught up in the prosperity gospel and get <clears throat> all caught up in the, the healing movements and the tongues movements and all those kind of things, the reason it gets so messed up and so convoluted and such a horrific disaster is because it's not something God wants you to have. That's not yours. He didn't promise that stuff to you. Those, it's just misinterpretations of the word of God and you're looking for something that God never said you could have. And so you look in the wrong places and you get the wrong things and it's a playground for the devil. It really is. So, oh, but I watched a, a thing once and people were jerking on the ground and all the rest and it was the Holy Spirit. Well, go to the Bible. Just, just go to the Bible. See what it has to say. There are plenty of instances in the Bible of people falling on the ground jerking around. And you know what it is? Every time, always, without exception, devils. That's not something the Holy Spirit of God does. That's something devils do. So when somebody stands up with a Bible and knocks you on the head and you fall down and jerk on the ground, that was not God. Whatever zipped through you was not God. I promise you that. That wasn't it. Be careful. Stick with the word of God. Be content with such things as ye have. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And the very next verse says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I don't need more than him. I've got the best that there is. Romans 13, 9 says, thou shalt not covet. You know what covetousness is in the life of the child of God? It's lack of contentment. And it's when we say to God, God, you messed up. You didn't do it right. You didn't give me the thing I really wanted. God, you, you blew it this time. This is not what I was looking for. Can you imagine? What a ludicrous thing to say to the God of heaven. But when we begin to covet that which God did not give us, that's exactly what we're doing. When David coveted Bathsheba, you know what he was saying to God? God, you didn't give me enough. You remember when Nathan came back to David and pointed his finger at him? And he told him the story about the man who had the little lamb and the traveler who came by. And David said, oh, that's a wicked man. And, and Nathan said, it's you. And then he delivered a message from God. He said, I gave you this and this and this and this and this. And I gave you wives and I gave you land. And, and if that had not been enough, I would have given you more. And yet you wanted the thing you couldn't have. You weren't satisfied with everything that I gave you, which was far more than you needed. And that's how we live much of our lives. God, I want this or I want that. And then when we don't get it, we're bitter and we're angry and we're mad. Because God messed up. 
Have you ever given a present to a child who has not yet learned the niceties of receiving gifts? You know, you're supposed to be thankful. No matter what it is, you're thankful. And, and they'll open the package and look in there and then say, I didn't want that. Or that's the wrong one or the wrong color. or that, I don't like that. And, and you, want to, you want to hug them. I mean, squeeze the devil right out of them. You think, well, I'll just, let me take it back to Walmart, amen. (laughs) And I'll buy myself something. You know what that does in your heart. Can you imagine the God of heaven who's given you everything you could possibly need? And then quite honestly, he's dumped extra blessings on us. I mean, more than we could ever count. And then we look at him and say, God, you didn't give me what I wanted. We need to learn to be content. And we can. We can. It is possible. Look at what else he says here. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Now remember, the context here is in learning to be content. He said, I can be content in whatsoever state. I can be content when I'm being abased. Now, I went to the Green 1828 Dictionary and I looked up that word abased just to make sure we had it straight. And here's what it said. To reduce, to humble, and to degrade. That's pretty severe. I would dare say, uh, listen, if I was going to take volunteers and say, all right, who would like to come up on the platform tonight and we will debase you? Nobody's volunteering, and if, please don't raise your hand, because we'll think less of you if that sounds like a good idea to you. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be looked down on, and nobody wants to be humiliated, and, and nobody wants to be reduced and humbled. Nobody wants to be abased. But it does happen. And it happens to everybody sooner or later at some point. If anybody knew what it was like to be abased, it's the Apostle Paul. You read Philippians chapter 3, and you find out that he was a very important man in Jerusalem. He was a a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He knew his lineage. He was a Pharisee. He was not just a Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee who went out and put feet to what he believed. He went out and persecuted those who stood against his tradition. And he was was not just somebody who said that's a bad thing. He went after it. He was was the kind of guy that everybody in Jerusalem, the mothers would say to their little boys, you want to be like that guy one day. And we're rough on the Pharisees. We are. Because Jesus was rough on the Pharisees. But do you understand why Jesus was so rough on the Pharisees? Because if anybody should have recognized him for who he was, as soon as he showed up, it was the Pharisees. They didn't just read the scriptures, they memorized it. It was completely memorized. They knew it word for word. They knew the prophecies. They knew everything about the Messiah. And when he showed up, they should have said, there he is. But he didn't fit into their political idea. And so they said, we don't want that one. We want a different one who can set up a kingdom here and make us important and powerful. But as far as as society was concerned, they were the cream of the crop. They were the spiritual ones. They were the godly ones. They were the religious ones. They They were the wise men. And everybody looked up to them. And that's who Paul was, Saul the Pharisee. And then he gets saved. And now he's the guy that gets run out of town And he gets whipped and he gets beaten and he gets stoned nearly to death and he's sitting in jail half the time or better and just one thing after the next and he knows how to be abased. How to no longer get credit for anything that he's ever done. And now he's an outcast from society. He knows what it's like to be abased. And he said, I can do that and still be content. That's a lot. But he not only said that, he said, I know what it is to abound and be content. So, well, shouldn't that be easy? I, I think it would be hard to be content when you're being abased, but shouldn't it be easy to be content when you're abounding? That means everything's going right. Well, human nature is such that when everything is going right and we have everything we need 
We want more. We're never satisfied. We always want something more. It's human nature. It's not new. It's always been that way. Listen, you, you've got everything you want. Adam and Eve are in a perfect place, in a perfect world. And the one thing they're not supposed to have, that's what they want. And it's been that way ever since. We always want something more. And he said, I have learned that I can be content when I'm being abased and everything is falling apart. And I can be content when everything's going great and everybody's patting me on the back. I can still be content. Again, because contentment is not based on the circumstances. He says, I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. We do meetings in a, in a suburb of Washington, D.C. on the northeast side over in Maryland. And it's right, right next to NASA. And there are literally rocket scientists going in and out all day long. And, and there, there are these multi-million dollar houses across the street. And they've just put in these very expensive condominiums around the back and all that stuff, and, and in the middle of it all is a little chunk of property that somebody refused to sell. And there's a little old church building on there. It's old, it's not much to look at, and there's a ratty old house right next to it. And I'm sure it is a terrible grief to all those people in the multi-million dollar homes across the street. And so we go there and we pull our fifth wheel up next to the ratty old house and we plug in and we're sitting in the parking lot for a week. And right across the road are the multi-million dollar homes. And it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, they are just gorgeous. And, and, and the thing that's not over there is people. You'd be hard pressed to ever see a person there. Sometimes on Saturday you'll see a few people out. Any other day of the week, the cars are gone before you get out of bed and they don't come back till way after dark. And if the school bus drops kids off, they go home with their key and they go in the door and shut the door and stay in the house. Why? Well, because quite honestly, those people living in those multi-million dollar homes can't afford them. They just wanted them, that's all. They wanted more than they really needed. And that's not, that's not the exclusive uh, problem of wealthy people. Poor people do the same thing. Everybody does it. It's human nature. What do houses sell for in Maslin, Ohio? I suppose they've gotten ridiculous, haven't they? Let's say somebody wants to buy a $200,000 house. I mean, they've saved, they've got their down payment, they want to buy a $200,000 house. So they go down to the realtor, and they say, Mr. Realtor, we want to buy a house, and we're not spending a dime over $200,000. You know what the realtor's going to show you all day long? $250,000 and $300,000 $300, houses. They'll pretend there's no such thing as a $200,000 house. Why? Because they know you'll buy more than you ought to. Because they can work on that impulse and convince you that this is just a little better than what you would have done. And this is what you really want. Oh, you might not need it, but you really want this. And they'll sell it to you. you any basic sales training course will teach you that. It's called upselling. Amen. Yeah, they even do it at McDonald's. They do it. Yeah. You know, you know how you look at $200,000 houses? You go down to the realtor and say, I'm not spending a penny over $150,000. And you know what they'll show you all day long? $200,000 houses. It's true. That's what they'll do. Why? Because of human nature. Because we're never satisfied. We always want more than we need, more than we have, more than the other guy has. And God told the Apostle Paul to write down these words and say, you can be content even when you're abounding. You can learn that. Said in verse 12, well, yes, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So we see the possibility of contentment and all that goes along with it. 
But then we see how it happens. And here's how it happens. The power of God. That's how it happens. Verse 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That's a wonderful little verse. As a matter of fact, it's such a wonderful little verse that really that's its biggest problem. It's a wonderful little verse. When a verse is just too good and it's also short, our tendency is to pluck it out of its context and put it on everything. Everything. And suddenly it becomes, I can win the ball game through Christ. I can get the promotion through Christ. I can get the new car through Christ. I can win the lottery through Christ. And that's not what it says. Every verse has a context. And you better find out what the context is. Like I told you about verse number 19, where it says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. There is a context. And the context does matter if you're going to properly apply the verse. And so in the context here, when he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, what he's talking about is learning to be content. Not winning the ball game and getting the promotion. And No, no. I can even be content when I'm abounding, when I'm being abased, when I'm full, when I'm hungry. How in the world can I do that? Through Christ. And so we take that little verse and we put it out and we slap it on things and people forget what it's really all about. I think we have some mugs in the trailer that have it on there. I was in a place as wicked as Walmart and they had a little shelf and everything on the shelf had the verse on there. And God forbid you should go into Hobby Lobby. You'd be hard pressed to find something without that verse on it in Hobby Lobby. You can cover your whole wall with I can do all things wallpaper if you want from Hobby Lobby. And most people have no idea. What it's really talking about is learning to be content. Being content in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of the circumstances. You see, I don't want to focus on the I can do all things. And I don't want to focus on the which strengtheneth me part. I want to focus on the two words in the middle. Those are the most important words in the middle. Through Christ. How do you do that? How do you learn to be content in difficult times? Listen, you'd have to be blind, deaf, and dumb to think we don't live in difficult times. Oh, others have lived in difficult times and even more difficult times, but ours are getting difficult, and I don't want to be ugly, but they're going to get more difficult. And we're going to have to learn to be content in our relationship with God. Oh, I I would like for us to be, you know, prosperous and happy and safe until the day of the rapture. But quite honestly, God never said it would be that way. It could get really nasty before that happens. It could. There's no guarantee that we won't have any problems and we won't have any persecution and we won't have any suffering and we won't have any need. And, and to think that we would get away from all that is a little bit selfish because there are an awful lot of Christians who've had to go through that for a long time. And we might have to. And we can still be content through Christ. No other way, but through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. There was a guy by the name of Eugene Bartlett. He was born December 24th, 1885. And he was just a little baby. His family moved to Arkansas. That's where he grew up, spent all of his life. He was saved young. He got saved in church as just a little boy, grew up in church, loved church, loved the things of God, was always active in his church. He loved the music in particular. He loved to sing and he loved to play. And as he grew up, he got more and more involved. He started to write music and he started to arrange music. And when he was an adult in 1918, he founded the Hartford Music Company. For the sole purpose of publishing gospel music so that people could sing and praise and honor God. Over the next 20 years, he opened branches in Texas and Oklahoma as well. 
And then he founded the Hartford Music Institute in 1921, where he'd bring people in and sit them down in the class and teach them to read music and write music and play instruments and sing. And, and all those, his whole life was built around teaching people to sing, to glorify and honor God. Not a bad thing. And so that's how he spent his life. His most famous student in the Hartford Music Institute was a guy by the name of Albert E. Brumley. You would recognize some of his songs. He wrote, I'll fly away and he set me free and turn your radio on and I'll meet you in the morning. And if we never meet again this side of heaven and hundreds and hundreds more before he passed away. Every, every summer, uh, Mr. Bartlett would travel basically the southeast and he would hold singing schools. And they'd go to a church and they'd be there for a week or more and people would come from everywhere and, and they'd take off work and they'd show up and he'd do just what he did in the Music Institute. He'd teach them to read music, he'd teach them to sing parts, he'd teach them to play, how to be in a choir, how to lead a choir, how to lead singing, how to do solos and trios and quartets. And he, that's what he did every summer and then he'd teach all fall and at the same time he's publishing and writing songs. That's what he did. He wrote over 800 songs himself. He wrote a song called There'll Be Shouting on the Hills. One called Everybody Will Be Happy Over There. Just a little while to stay here, camping in Canaan land. And then he wrote a song that got some popular attention when a grand old Opry star picked it up and started singing it. It was a guy by the name of Little Jimmy Dickens. How many of you are familiar with Little Jimmy Dickens? I figured as much. I can usually spot them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My dad grew up during the Depression in central Minnesota, and, uh, and they would listen to the Grand Ole Opry late at night on the radio on the weekends, and he loved all those old songs and those old singers, and little Jimmy Dickens was one of his favorites. Little Jimmy Dickens is a little short guy. And he wore these sparkly suits and sparkly cowboy hats and he had sparkly guitar and he had a little funny nasal voice and he'd play his little sparkly guitar and he'd sing these songs, mostly humorous songs. That's what he was known for. And he was funny and everybody loved him. And he picked up one of Eugene Bartlett's songs. It was called, Take an Old Cold Tater and Wait. You'd be familiar with that one, wouldn't you? Uh-huh. And for those of you who are uninitiated, you can Google it later and listen to it if you need a blessing. It's on, it's on there. You can hear little Jimmy sing it. Amen. And it's about a little boy whose family invites the preacher home after Sunday morning service. And they're going to feed him. And they're going to have chicken and taters. And the rule in the house is the little boy can't have any chicken until the preacher gets all the chicken that he wants. And he just has to take an old cold tater and wait. Popular music in the 30s was not the same as popular music now. You know, now you can't even quote lyrics, but back then it was about everyday life. And, and so that became, that became a big hit. Albert, uh, Eugene Bartlett wrote that song. You know, I, I like to think of that as balance in the ministry. You know, everybody will be happy over there. Take an old cold tater and wait. I mean, that's balance <laughs> in the ministry. He suffered a debilitating stroke in 1939. He was only 54 years old. And that used to be old. That's not old anymore, brother. <laughs> now that it's in the rearview mirror, it's not so old. But he had a debilitating stroke. He really was at the peak of his, uh, of his career. He was writing. He was teaching. He was publishing. He was doing all of these things and doing it well. And, and God was blessing it. And, and it was just spreading everywhere. And boom, just like that, a stroke that changed his life. He couldn't walk. He could barely talk. He was in bed for the next year and a half until he died. He was laying there in bed after that stroke and he wrote one more song, just one. They would take him out of the bed. From every account that I've read, they'd take him out of the bed and he would, he'd write down a few words and then back to the bed. And they'd bring him his, his little table and he'd write some notes and then he's done. And, and it went on and on and on. And finally he got it done before he passed away. And it's without a doubt 
his most famous song. Everybody knows it. It's in everybody's songbook. I mean, it's just, it's definitely his most famous song. But most people don't know where it came from in his life. They think it's just a great little song and they don't understand what's behind it. It goes like this. I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory How he gave his life on Calvary To save a wretch like me had to do was just say the word and they'd get up off the bed they were healed and in that light verse number two makes perfect sense i heard about his healing of his cleansing power revealing how he made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see So then he said, why don't you just come and heal my spirit so my spirit will be right? And he said, Jesus did that. He came and he healed my broken spirit. And then he goes on to verse 3. And verse 3 is completely different. It's not about his salvation. It's not about healing. Verse 3 is all about what's coming next. He said, I've heard about mansion and I am ready for it. Come and get me. I've heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory, and I've heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing and the old redemption story, and some
learn to be content when your whole life is flipped upside down. It's not the way you thought it was going to be and it's not turning out like you wanted. How do you, how do you learn to be content there? Well, the answer is in the song. The victory is not in the fact that God's going to fix it because he doesn't always fix it. The victory is not in the fact that it's going to be all right. Sometimes it's not all right. The victory is in Jesus. And that's enough. How, How can I learn to be content? Through Christ. Oh, but but isn't there something else? No, no, there's not. There's not a second option. It's either you learn to be content through Christ or you live a miserable, wretched life. It is possible to be content through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you need to know him as your Savior. That doesn't work if you're not his child. If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as Savior, you need to get saved. Because I promise you there are days coming where you're going to need His power in your life. You're going to need His comfort. You're going to need His help. For those of you who are saved, let's take advantage of what God has given us. Amen. Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we could be here tonight. Lord, it's not a a complicated thing. Actually, it's pretty simple. God, just help us to get beyond our circumstances and instead focus on the all-powerful God who is our Savior, who has our best interests at heart. And God, help us to learn to be content with where you've allowed us to be what you've allowed us to do. Lord, if there would be somebody here tonight who's lost and on their way to hell, God, I pray they wouldn't leave that way. But that tonight would be the night they would realize the importance of salvation. Tonight they'd get saved before it's too late. God, we just ask that you'd work in our midst tonight. And we'll thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, as the song plays.